Welcome to Global Data Pod Research Wrap. I'm your host, Nora Santivani, and joining me today, I have Hai Binju, Chief Economist for China here at JP Morgan, and Gracing, Senior Economist for China. Hi to both of you. How are you doing? Hey, Nora. Hey, great to have you on. And so this, this episode is dedicated to China. We haven't done one in a while, and I thought this would be a, a good time to, to talk about China, given uh, so much going on there. Uh, we'll be digging deeper into China's policy easing measures and in particular how they compare to past episodes and also talk a bit about what we can expect for China growth going forward. Well, since the Politburo meeting last July, uh, China has rolled out a series of easing measures uh, to stabilize growth. And, you know, it feels like the overall pace of these measures has been quite modest. Uh, there's been some disappointment expressed by market participants with the pace of easing, its effectiveness, the magnitude. Um, you know, it, it feels like the efforts uh, so far are keeping growth around the 5% mark, but we've also flagged that uh, there are material imbalances that are perhaps threatening the medium term outlook. So maybe we can start a little bit by uh, discussing the, the kind of macro backdrop right now, in particular, how this compares to uh, a past episode that you've highlighted in your research, 2015-16, uh, which we've said is a you know pretty good benchmark uh, for understanding the economy and the, the challenges and policy responses that we're seeing right now. Grace, do you want to start us off by just giving a bit of backdrop for uh, maybe comparing these two periods, focusing on the kind of macro similarities? Sure. Um, thank you, Nora. Uh, indeed, I think, um, as you mentioned, financial markets have been um, uh, looking back to China's um, uh, big stimulus um, in the past, especially the 4 trillion yuan uh, stimulus package um, implemented after the GFC. And that package um, turned around the Chinese economy and also actually helped to support the recovery in the global economy. Um, but in our view, uh, the 2015-16 episode is perhaps the more relevant um, benchmark of comparison uh, for the economy's uh, current situation. Um, in both the 2015-16 uh, episode and this uh, latest um, slowdown, um, the economy seemed to face um, similar challenges uh, in the form of housing market downturn, uh, weak domestic demand, deflation pressure, um, as well as um, currency devaluation and capital outflow pressure. Uh, local government hidden debt was a significant uh, issue um, and challenge in both cases. Uh, on the macro front, uh, in both instances, we saw um, slowing in growth and um, a, a drag from um, the deflation pressure in the economy. If you look at China's real GDP growth, um, that fell below 7% year on year in the third quarter of 2015 for the first time uh, since the GFC. Uh, the GDP deflated turned into deflation zone in both the third quarter and the fourth quarter of 2015. Um, and we saw a prolonged period of PPI deflation that lasted for 54 months um, from the March 2012 to August 2016. Um, this time around, we saw real GDP growth uh, come in generally on the soft side, um, averaging 
4.1% um, uh, annual pace uh, in 2022 and 23. Uh, we saw the GDP deflator uh, uh, going into negative territory um, in deflation zone for three consecutive quarters uh, since the second quarter of last year. Um, and that will quite likely uh, remain in deflation zone uh, for at least through the first half of this year. Housing market correction um, is an important issue in both um, episodes. If we look at uh, home prices trend and uh, housing activity, um, this current slowdown and the 2014-15 slowdown um, has been, have been the two most severe downturn um, in China's housing market history. Yeah, thanks, Grace. So, yeah, it does sound like there are a lot of, um, you know, similarities between back then and now, and um, the, the challenges are similar in many ways. In terms of the, the policy response, uh, it, it also looks like the government has adopted a wide range of uh, policy steps here, uh, some of which are, are similar, but some of which are different. Uh, Haibin, you've, you've you know, you flagged many times that the intention here is to avoid large scale, massive policy stimulus. So that that's quite clear. But we've also highlighted that there are some important differences rooted in the shift in focus, policy focus towards this high quality growth. So maybe you could kind of talk us through that and uh, just some of the policy responses and maybe how they're different this time around and what the reasons behind that might be. Yeah, no, right. So uh, Greece has elaborated on the uh, the macro similarities. And uh, so from the policy response perspective, uh, the, the current policy response also shares some similarity compared to 2015 and 16. And this is very important to keep, keep in mind because the, the policy regime hasn't changed. And that's very important. So if you look at a similar part, first, uh, the policy responses are multiple, uh, multi-dimensional. So it, it, it cover fiscal policy, monetary policy, housing policy, currency, and also the capital market stabilization measures. Uh, second is that in both cases, uh, the government made very clear, uh, no repeat of the four trillion massive stimulus package as we saw uh, back uh, in 20, uh, 2008 and 2009. Uh, they did the same uh, announcement in uh, 2015 and 16, and they reiterated the message also for this time. Uh, instead, actually, the, uh, the policy easing has been gradual in base cases and also there's a, a gradual facing and first always start from some more conventional uh, macro policy and then uh, shifting into unconventional approaches uh, we can discuss in, in detail in each area uh, however the uh, policy easing this time is different i think the biggest difference is that uh, in terms of magnitude of policy easing so far it has been much more modest compared to uh, 2015 and 16 episodes and this could be uh, uh, related for two reasons. First, was the, the, the 19th Party Congress uh, that happened in 2017, uh, it, it actually uh, uh, it implies a major shift in the uh, policy objective, particularly a shift from high growth to high quality growth model. So structural transformation is a key priority and that means actually the green developments, manufacturing upgrades, uh, common prosperity, and also uh, reduce reliance on the housing market, for example. And this has an important implication on the current uh, policy choice. Uh, second, the room for fiscal and monetary easing this time is much more limited. This is also a very important difference to understand the current policy choice. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting you mentioned that the attitude toward the the housing market is is different and there's an explicit 
policy um, rebalancing, I suppose, to reduce reliance on the on the housing market. What I wonder about, though, is the consumer in China, right? There's a clear absence of consumption stimulus measures, and we can talk about the fiscal policy uh, in a moment. But, you know, when I look at the Chinese consumer, very high household saving rate, collapsing consumer confidence, I guess this is partly linked to the collapse in the housing market, right? So what is the intention there? Why not uh, put in place more consumption stimulus type measures at this point? Yes, yeah, so uh, if you look back to 2015 and 16, uh, facing a similar problem, uh, but also that the uh, uh, consumption stimulus package is absent uh, during that yeah. episode. So that's why I mentioned earlier that uh, the, the, the policy regime actually uh, truly didn't change. Over, uh, over time. And uh, if you look at the last 15, 20 years, actually Chinese policy response always emphasized on investment on the uh, production side, and they actually they care less about the uh, the consumption. And the, 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 the historical policy lesson is that uh, if you are successful to uh, drive up the supply, drive up the production, then corporate actually will invest more and they will mm. hire more people. And then actually leading to income growth, and income growth actually will lead to consumption uh, growth. So that was the story in the past, and they actually they were successful. Uh, but I think this time is different because external demand is much weaker. So mm-hmm. when you have uh, imbalance in the domestic demand supply, and that you have this deflation problem, it's much more difficult to walk out the situation without a consumption uh, stimulus package. Absolutely. And do you think there could be a reassessment uh, on that front by the government? Like, do they recognize that these are the main issues right now and they need perhaps a different approach? Well, the, uh, the, I think the, the, the imbalance between supply and demand is, uh, is contributing uh, attributing to the deflation pressure nowadays. And you, uh, this, we have the, the January uh, CPI reading actually was uh, hit even lower. So uh, that could actually have, lead to some reassessment mm-hmm. of, from policy side. For example, uh, we are expecting uh, a rate cut uh, later in, in the current quarter. Uh, but uh, I think there's uh, many other options the government can do uh, to support the consumption. Uh, for example, they can um, uh, uh, they, they can know obviously some product-specific uh, fiscal support measures. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can uh, introduce fiscal subsidy to childcare, elderly care, and also incentive for giving birth. Uh, they can also improve the social security, the social safety network system uh, to reduce the precautional saving. Right. So these are all possible policy options. Of course, that they can also think about consumption voucher or cash handout as adopting other countries. Although we think the poverty is still very low, it's not uh, in the uh, conventional policy uh, from from the fiscal authority in China. Perfect. Okay, so just coming back to uh, kind of the the backdrop on fiscal and and monetary policy here overall, it feels like the space for significant easing is quite limited and perhaps more limited than it was back in 2015-16. Do you want to walk us through what the constraints here are with respect to, you know, fiscal deficit, debt, level of interest rates, all these things seem like they're a bit more constraining at this point. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, uh, the on the fiscal side, yeah, there's some similarity in terms of the uh, the fiscal constraint uh, and also the local government hidden debt problem and also the uh, land sale is uh, hurting the fiscal capacity by local government. So we, we have some similarity and we also see uh, fiscal easing is gradually picking up. Uh, but overall, I would say the magnitude of fiscal easing this time is uh, smaller compared to 
2015 and 16. And one of the reasons is because the room for fiscal stimulus is smaller. And let me give you just two numbers. One is that uh, the uh, everybody is arguing that central government balance sheet is relatively healthy, uh, that the central government debt as a percent of GDP is only about 20% GDP. So that's a room for calling for a larger fiscal uh, stimulus in China. But if you uh, put central government debt together with the local government debt and also local government hidden debt, uh, we can call it the public debt. Public debt is now already 100% GDP. Uh, this is much higher than uh, back in 2014, only 50% GDP. So this actually uh, there is a difference. The second number, uh, if you look at the uh, our estimate of augmented fiscal deficit, uh, including both budgetary items and also off-budget items, uh, we are the augmented fiscal deficit is around 12% GDP in recent years. Uh, so the bar is much higher to talk about additional uh, uh, fiscal uh, impulse. Uh, back in 2014-15, augmented fiscal deficit is about 9 to 10% GDP. Mm. So in order to get similar fiscal impulse this time, meaning that augmented fiscal deficit need to be much higher and probably uh, unsustainable in the medium term. Mm. Is there a line in the sand on the fiscal deficit? Like uh, how much further could they go? I mean, I understand that it's already high and debt is already high, but do you feel like there's a, a, a threshold here that they don't want to cross or? Uh, I don't see the, uh, well, uh, from the fiscal authority perspective, they still honor these, uh, the very narrow definition, right? The budgetary mm -hmm. deficits, which is only a small part of the augmented fiscal deficit, they still honor 3% of the threshold. Uh, last year, actually, they did cost that uh, by introducing one trillion additional fiscal deficit, so making 3.8%. Uh, but I think that uh, uh, there's still uh, low tolerance for further increase this budgetary uh, fiscal deficit. And instead, actually, they are uh, using the other components, say the, uh, the quarter for special local government bonds, uh, which actually is not included as a budgetary fiscal deficit. And there's also the off-budgetary items uh, like land sales and LJVs. So these are jointly actually is, uh, 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 give you the full picture of China's fiscal policy. Uh, now, yeah, for that, I don't see actually this uh, explicit threshold, say what's the maximum or I think it's, uh, there's more some flexibility for the near term, see the mm, uh, annual okay. changes. So in the media term, yeah. Course, yeah. Uh, I think the drain is uh, more significant. Yeah. And then so the other area is monetary policy. Right. And there what I've been thinking, obviously, on the policy rate side, there's there's less space to cut because we're already much lower. But it feels like they could deploy the balance sheet a little bit more effectively. I think you mentioned uh, back in 2015, 16, that was a very important part of the monetary policy stimulus. And it actually was very effective in driving up housing demand and, and, and prices. So what do you think about this more extensive use of uh, the PBOC's balance sheet? Yeah, so uh, first, yeah, the, the PBOC actually has a unique uh, operational framework. Uh, in addition to the interest policy or the credit policy, as we saw for most what we call conventional monetary policy instruments, as we saw in other central banks, PBOC also has the so-called structural monetary policy instruments uh, through the uh, balance sheet, say the expansion, say, for example, uh, MLF and PSL, which they introduced actually uh, right in the, uh, the previous uh, 2015 uh, 2015 and 16 episodes. Uh, so in both cases, actually, they uh, 
the POC started from the convention of this aggregate say, policy, uh, like rate cut and triple R cuts. But from that perspective, uh, you're right, actually, the room is uh, much smaller this time. Uh, to give you a, a concrete idea, say back in 2015-16, the POC cut the seven-day reverse repo cumulatively uh, by 175 basis points. This time, uh, last year, they only cut twice, cumulative 20 basis points. And already the seven-day reverse repo is uh, now only 1.8, a record low level. Uh, same for triple R. Uh, in the, back in 2014-15, PUC cut four times, cumulatively 250 basis points. Now, in the last 12 months, the PUC cut three times, cumulatively only 100 basis points. And every which triple R in the bank says is now only 7%. The room actually is uh, much more limited uh, if you focus on the, uh, the, uh, the rate interest policy and also the credit policy. So that's why uh, the structural mortgage policy instruments is becoming more important. And particular POC also like the idea that the structural mortgage policy is more targeted and that could be more effective in the very near term. Uh, so a very important assumption for our, our growth forecast this year is uh, we expect PUC will use the PSL uh, to provide a one trillion B package uh, to support the public uh, public housing, urban village renovation, and public infrastructure. And this is very important because it can help to mitigate the decline of real estate investments, only decline two to four percent this year, versus last year decline by ten percent, and will lift the GDP growth uh, by roughly half percentage points. So this mm. is important. And remember back in 2015 and 16, uh, PSL uh, played probably even bigger role because that's a catalyst to drive the turning around in the housing market uh, back in 2016. And this POC did the multiple year, uh, two to three trillion PSL uh, in that episode. All right, yes. Uh, so it sounds like there's uh, certainly space for uh, for the policymakers to put in um, place some additional steps here. Uh, just coming back to the housing market briefly, Grace, um, you know, it, it, it feels like the, the housing market is very key. It's very important part of the, the growth stabilization effort. Uh, when I look at um, housing, uh, I think we've said it accounts for something like 60% of household wealth. Uh, you know, home ownership is 90%. So clearly the housing market here has a very significant impact on confidence and the overall economy and, and, and growth. But it also feels like policymakers have slightly multiple objectives here, right? They're trying to stabilize the housing market, but in the backdrop, there's also an intention to reduce the economy's reliance on the property sector, right? So maybe just like talk us through here, um, you know, what are the policies that they can put in place without jeopardizing those objectives with respect to, you know, not building up imbalances, but at the same time, trying to stabilize the, the, the downturn here? Yeah, um, thanks, Nora. Yeah, indeed. Um, I think if you look at, um, again, both episodes of 2015-16 uh, and this time round of um, economic slowdown, the um, slowing in the housing sector um, has been a, a key drag. And therefore, um, the policy to stabilize the housing market is uh, a very important part of the overall uh, growth stabilization effort. Um, uh, the, the, however, we do see the a difference with regard to housing policy uh, and the housing market uh, development uh, in the sense that, firstly, the housing market slowdown um, uh, last time in uh, 2015 was more of a cyclical uh, matter, um, but the downturn this time around is 
both cyclical as well as structural, um, especially uh, when we take into account um, aging population, declining birth rate, um, slowing pace of urbanization and higher level of household leverage in general. So if we look at um, the magnitude of housing um, policy relaxation, um, that seems to be um, uh, uh, quite a bit less um, this time around. Um, uh, if you look at the past episode, um, property prices began to fall uh, in May of 2014, and we saw many tier two cities starting to ease their uh, home purchase restrictions um, as early as September uh, that year. Uh, this time around, the relaxation in home purchase restrictions um, has been more city-specific and moving pretty slowly, um, especially considering the um, uh, Beijing's um, still on uh, uh, focusing on uh, housing is for living, not for speculation uh, kind of um, uh, policy um, uh, mentality. So the uh, slower pace of home, uh, housing policy relaxation and uh, the modest uh, magnitude uh, basically um, uh, uh, continue to um, lead to um, a weak market sentiment, uh, uh, especially with regard to home buyers um, in terms of their expectation of a price trend going forward, um, as well as um, their own concern about um, job security, uh, income outlook, and so on. So overall, we saw a larger um, a negative impact on the macro economy um, and um, more concerns on financial uh, vulnerability at this time around. Um, and indeed, overall housing activity has yet to show uh, signs of bottoming. Okay, uh, perfect. Thank you, Grace. Uh, so, um, hi, Ben, I'll let you have the, the last word here. Um, it feels like the, the message we're sending is that the overall magnitude of policy easing this time is smaller than it was in 2015-16. It's certainly a lot smaller than it was in 2008-2009. And there's probably a little bit of space here uh, to do more. So overall, how would you characterize the risks to 2024 growth outlook? And um, what do you think the government needs to do? How much more stimulus do they need to put in place to achieve this sort of growth stabilization objective? Yes, so for uh, 2024, we, uh, we think the government will maintain the 5% growth target uh, for this year. And although potential growth probably has come down to below that level uh, based on our estimates, our growth forecast is still 4.9%, uh, very close to the targets. Uh, investment side, uh, the uh, uh, the public invest public housing investment can partly offset uh, the decline uh, in the uh, real estate investment. So uh, the investment contribution for this year will uh, pick up modestly. So that's our general picture. Now, uh, whether the government will need more uh, policy stimulus, uh, of course, policy easing is helpful, uh, but I think that we need to be careful. Uh, the policy effectiveness probably has been different, uh, particularly given a lot of structural uh, problems in the economy. So from that perspective, we have been keep on saying that uh, it's probably more important for the government to change the policy direction to rebalancing uh, the, uh, the policy support. Uh, particularly, uh, we have discussed about what measures can be adopted to support consumption rather as they continue to uh, support investment and production. And also another example is that uh, equal treatment between SOE and non-SOE, uh, equal, equal treatment between manufacturing upgrade and service upgrade. Uh, these are important to address the uh, the, uh, the, the problem that uh, the upper middle income families actually they are facing uh, the uh, income 
uh, the, the the pay cut pressure or job security concern because a lot of the many service sectors has been facing policy headwinds uh, in recent years. So I think all these actually the directional change in the policy is more important and they do not require say fiscal or monetary resources. So that mm-hmm. that could be important. If the government can deliver that, say the uh, changing the uh, fix the policy distortion and making the policy more market friendly, uh, more transparent and more predictable. This is not only good for this year, but also uh, for the uh, in the media term. Right? Uh, if instead actually the policy distortion continue to exist, uh, then even actually this year's the the, the uh, getting closer to the target, the problem for twenty twenty five or coming years actually trying to put it, uh, the growth sustainability could be a more serious issue. Okay, thank you very much. Well, uh, we'll have to leave it there for today. Uh, thank you, Haibin. Thank you, Grace. Uh, thank you to our listeners for tuning in to the Global Data Pod. And we look forward to continuing the conversation on the next episode. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on February 8th, 2024.